I will take off my 1890s cavalry hat. Because I can't, with a straight face, possibly preach in that hat. <laughs> I love Purim. It's the only day of the year I don't have to dress up. I had a friend call me this week, and uh, you know, we talked about this and that, and next thing I know, he goes, are you all right? And I said, well, you know, I did. <laughs> and he said, a lot of people are concerned about you. Is it my breath? I, I, not. I appreciate the concern if you are concerned and I appreciate the obtuseness if you're not. I'm, I'm doing fine, I guess. You know, for an old man. I suspect some people are getting a little concerned because at one time in my life, I was a warrior who had uh, a great deal of situational awareness. It saved my life on many different occasions. Now, I just don't care. I've listened to a few of the things that are going on around me. I'm going a little deaf. I constantly have to ask what. And then people tell me what they said and I go, why did I want to hear that? <laughs> I believe I will get hearing aids and utilize them in the same fashion Eliezer Urbach, the founder of this congregation, did. I'm going to put them in and not put in any batteries. <laughs> and I will be happier, I think. What I've noticed during the last five or six years is a dramatic turn in how I see things. I spend more time in Olam Haba in eternity than I do in Olam Hazeh, this world. I get up very early in the morning and spend many hours with the Lord and His Word. And it is the sole origin, the Mikor Chayim, the fountainhead of life for me. It is, it is, a, it is the choice part. When I'm out and about, none of the things I'm doing in the mundane world really mean anything to me anymore. I don't know exactly what that is, but some might call it dementia. But I don't think it is. I'm still quite sharp mentally. I just don't care. This world is becoming less and less important to me.
And I take joy in that, actually. Except when I can't find my keys. <laughs> on my phone. And currently, if I leave the house with my pants on, I figure it's going to be a good day. Don't be concerned. I appreciate it if you are, but not necessary. Um, I've never been so lost that the Lord didn't know where I was. Amen. So. Tomorrow, the title of this message is the Gansa Megillah. The whole story or the rest of the story is Paul Harvey would have put it. Tomorrow I will, uh, we will read the Megillah. A number of men will come up and, and read. Tonight I wish to give some background and some context to a woman called Esther. Megillah Esther is one of the most important and one of the most prophetic books of scripture. It is most certainly one of the most enigmatic in that it is only one of two books in which neither the name yod heh vav -Hey, nor the title Elohim of God is found. It's, it's not found. Only two books in scripture, Shia Sharim and Megillat Esther. The only two books in scripture that don't have the word God or Lord. And this fact gave birth to a great deal of debate amongst my people. The question was, how come we can include in scripture a book that never mentions God? That never mentions his name. This is, the scriptures are about God. These books don't mention him. Others of my people saw God everywhere in Megillat Esther and revealed where this story is found in Torah. And that is necessary for the Jewish people for a book to be included in the canon of scripture, there has to be some reference in the five books of Moses, the Torah, in order for it to be included. And those who saw God in the book of Esther saw a link to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 20, and I will hide my face from them. Adonai Shema, God is there. But he obscures his presence behind this mechitza, this, this barrier, this, this veil. And he works behind the scenes. I will be, begin by giving an overview of the story and then some background. Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and we were expelled from the land promised to us by God. The vast majority of the Jews settled in towns throughout the Persian Empire, including Shushan, which was the capital city. King Ahasuerus, in a moment of drunken exuberance, alienates his wife Vashti by asking her to display her beauty before his court during this celebration. She refused. And the king and queen parted ways. We don't know if she was exiled from the kingdom, if she was put in the dungeons, or if she was exiled from life. Ahasuerus used the utterly chauvinistic institution of the beauty pageant 
to seek another wife. And his choice was based solely on the beauty of the female form. He would come to love the one he chose more deeply as he beheld the beauty of her soul, which far outshined the beauty of her form. Esther, apparently she wasn't that good looking. <laughs> Esther, thank you, was an orphan raised by her uncle Mordecai. That's the other part of Purim I really like. <laughs> to interrupt the rabbi. <laughs> How cool. She was an orphan raised by her uncle Mordecai, and when she wins the beauty pageant, Uncle Morty, or Muddle, in Yiddish, tells her not to tell anybody that she's, she's Jewish. He knows that will be bad. Can't have a Jewish queen. That's uh, out of the question. This is the first of many lies of omission contained within this story. The Megillat Esther is an amazing story of intrigue and political posturing whose intricate twists and turns rival any of the machinations of Agatha Christie and her hero Hercule Perrault. The one with the snidely whiplash mustache? Yeah. The twists and turns, the, the conniving, the, the, the deceit, it's epic. The antagonist in this story is Haman. <laughs> Not enough. I'm sorry. Uh, this is a, a participatory message. You have a part in this. The antagonist of this story is Haman. Thank you for the from the yid in the back. Good Lord, I have a Presbyterian Messianic congregation. He was the trusted, albeit utterly self-absorbed, prime minister of Ahasuerus. Mordecai was a well-known Jew who refused to bow to him, and infuriated by this blatant disregard of his stature, he bribes the king to enact a decree to kill off all the Jews in a single day. That, that single day would be chosen by the casting of Apur, um, a lot. Hence the name Purim for this celebration. Pur means lot, something by chance. Mordecai overhears the plot by Haman and tells Esther to go to the king to save her people. She is afraid because at the customs of the time, if she goes unannounced and the king doesn't want to see her, it's that sentence. Bad. Mordecai <coughs> then recites these rather famous words. Do not think in your heart that you will escape 
in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance or salvation will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Silence is a poor refuge. Thinking only of your own safety will not protect you from the storm. Mordecai rallies the Jews of Shushan and the provinces to to pray for Esther and Haman's evil plot is foiled. The Jews were given the right to defend themselves by the king and they prevailed against evil. Haman is hung on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. The battle took place on Adar 14 and the celebration of this victory took place the next day on Adar 15. Purim is one of the inspiration... Okay, let me ask for the sake of my old brain that we dispense now that we've gotten all the yeas, boos, and ahs out. Let's not do that anymore because I will get confused and wander off. (laughs) Purim is one of the inspiration for the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, actually. To rise up against Hitler, to not be silent, to stand against evil, overtly, And although they did not prevail, they died on their feet fighting rather than on their knees begging. Megillat Esther is included in scripture to reveal God's primary method of bringing salvation to Israel. Although the Bible is filled with examples of the overt workings of God within his creation, the the redemption from Egypt, the, the, the his appearance at Sinai, Jericho's walls falling. These are overt displays of God's hand in action within this world. Far more often, however, God is seen working in a clandestine fashion. He obscures his presence and works behind the scenes, engineering uh, situations and circumstances that will eventually reveal his glory. The presence of God goes unrecognized until God lifts the veil that blinds us and then we see him everywhere. The book of Esther reveals the relationship between the hidden and the revealed. Let's define some words. Esther was Hadassah's Persian name. Every Jew outside the land of Israel has a Hebrew name and a name in the language of the culture within which, in which he lives. Few people know this, but uh, Eliezer Urbach's first name was Adolf. A very common name prior to Hitler. After Hitler, not so much. 
when he got to Israel, he got his citizenship and they said, well, you might want to change your name. So he took, he, he became known by his Hebrew name, Eliezer, God is my help. I'm glad. I, Rabbi Adolf would never fly. It just, it's not going to work. The name Esther or Ishtar means star in Persian. It's an eight-pointed star of Ishtar, and it was the dominant image, for instance, on the flag of Iran from 1959 to about 1965. Iran is modern-day Persia. Her name, Hadassah, means myrtle tree in Hebrew, and it's one of the species that is waved before God during the Feast of Sukkot. The ancients of my people saw a relationship between the Persian name Ishtar and the Hebrew word Nistar, which is one of the words in Hebrew that means to hide. The word Megillah is often translated story or scroll. It means neither. It is translated that way because Megillah reveals the story that is contained within the scroll of Esther. The word Megillah actually means to reveal, to discover, to expose. And therefore Megillah, Megillat Esther can be translated the revealing of the hidden, according to our, my people. Interesting, obviously, Ishtar and Nistar are a play on words. It, they're, they're different languages, but it's interesting how they, they turn this into God's hidden, God has hidden his face from us in the book of Esther, and they, they see it as the revealing of God, God's face, the revealing of that which is hidden. I have related many stories from the Holocaust during Purim, and Yom HaShoah. I have personally lived during one of those feasts of Purim that didn't take place, uh, that, that took place in, in modern times, 1991. The war was called euphemistically in Israel, Chag Haskadot the Feast of the Scots, Saddam Hussein, or as he became known in Israel, so damn insane, was uh, firing these rockets into Israel. And he tried to get Israel to be involved in the war, which would have completely collapsed the coalition that George W. Uh, set up to fight against. Iraq. That war ended on Shushan Purim, very day. And that did not go unnoticed in Israel. After so long in the Cheda Hatum, the sealed rooms, because we, weren't, we never knew if he was going to attach chemical weapons to his scuds, 
People came pouring out into the streets when the end of the war was announced. And they actually used a phrase that is used during Hanukkah, and it was adapted during Purim. Nezgadol Hayapol. During Hanukkah, we, we say, Nezgadol Hayasham. A great miracle happened there. This is a great miracle happened here. And it wasn't Hanukkah, it was Purim. And people just poured out into the streets. The celebration was the wildest thing I'd ever seen, and I've been to Mardi Gras. <laughs> it was over the top. People were screaming and rejoicing and singing and dancing in the streets. Ben Yehuda was shoulder to shoulder. There were other Purim fests in our history. Interestingly enough, the Pulitzer Prize journalist by the name of Kingsbury Smith was chosen by casting lots, just like Purim, to represent the American press at the trials at Nuremberg in 1946. One of those who were executed there was a man by the name of Julius Stryker. Smith records the events and Stryker's last words on that infamous day. As the guards stopped him at the bottom of the steps, these are Smith's words. As the guards stopped him at the bottom of the steps for the identification formality, he uttered his piercing scream, Heil Hitler! The shriek sent a shiver down my back. As he reached the platform, Streicher cried out, Now it goes to God. Indeed, sir. He was pushed the last two steps to the mortal spot beneath the hangman's rope. The rope was being held back by a wooden rail by the hangman. Streicher was swung, turned, suddenly to face the witnesses and glared at them. And he screamed out, Purimfest, 1946. The Nazis were fascinated by the occult, and more specifically, by the holy days of Israel. They studied them. The temple that was being built, of which the SS was the priesthood, if, if you don't know the background of the Nazis, you're missing a lot of World War II. It was a, Nazis were a religion. The SS was the priesthood. It was structured just like Israel. Hitler was tantamount to Moses. In one speech, Hitler actually compared himself to Haman. He called himself Haman. This is a very famous story. It's known by many people, but there is another less known story that also relates the revelation of God's presence in Megillat Esther, of how God works behind the scenes to cause his will to come to pass. I will read another person's account of the events for I could not communicate them in a, better, in a better way. I doubt many of you have heard of 
Eddie Jacobson, a Jewish guy from New York. Where else? When Eddie was a child, his parents moved to Kansas City, and there he met a boy who became his close friend. Their friendship grew when they were both in the Army during the First World War, and they started a business together after the war was over. When the recession, it's actually called the Depression, when the Depression hit, he had to close the business, and the partnership ended. Eddie Jacobson became a traveling salesman and eventually opened his own clothing store while his friend, Harry Truman, went into politics and eventually became president of the United States. Throughout all of this, the two remained friends. At the beginning of 1948, while the Jews of the world desperately sought the support of America, the State Department advised the president not to support the establishment of the State of Israel. Truman was under tremendous pressure from all sides, and at some point he said, I don't want to hear any more about Palestine, and the end was done. He refused to meet with Chaim Weizmann, the president of the uh, Zionist organization. It was then that the Jewish organizations in America reached out to the childhood friend of the president, Eddie Jacobson. On March 13, 1948, just as Adar began, Jacob, Jacobson went unannounced, just like Esther, to see Truman in the Oval Office. And thus God's plan was set in motion. Five days later, Truman met secretly with, Weiz with Weizmann in the Oval Office and agreed to support the establishment of the State of Israel. Immediately after the state was declared, Harry Truman signed the proclamation. Amen. Twenty years later, Truman would write, one of my proudest moments of my one of the proudest moments of my life occurred at 6.12 p.m. on Friday, May 14, 1948, when I was able to announce the recognition of the new state of Israel by the government of the United States. I remain particularly gratified by the role I was fortunate to play in the birth of Israel as, in the immortal words of the Balfour Declaration, a national home for the Jewish people. It's an extraordinary story. It parallels the story, the Megillat Esther, almost exactly, although nobody said, ah, when they saw Jacobson. <laughs> I, the, the author of this story continues, I think this story clearly, I think in this story we clearly see the same message that the book of Esther conveys to the sober and the hard question that this book challenges us with. What do we do when God hides his face? Both this story and the book itself give a pro profound answer. We have to remember always that God has a hidden secret plan for such a time as this and to trust him, to reveal himself through that plan. There are no greater instructions to guide us through the days that we are in right now 
Again, daily I am withdrawing from this world. I don't want to be in it anymore. I completely understand what Paul was saying. I don't want to be here. I'd rather be dead. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And at some point, you know, I have this understanding of Chanoch Inach. I don't know if it's accurate. It's just how I feel. The scriptures say, Chanoch walked with God, and he was not. For God, Lakach, he took him. He took him up. It's what in Hebrew would be the rapture, what we call the rapture, or the harpezio in Greek, the, the catching away of the saints. And I envision Hanoch as a man who every day his presence in this world began to fade. Every day he walked with God and he walked closer and closer and he walked for longer periods of time and then the world tugged and pulled him back. And one day he was walking with God and there was nothing left in this world pull him back into this world. And the Lord says, shine, it's done, come with me. And he was not, for the Lord took him. Amen. That's the way I understand it, because that's the way I feel these days. I, I'll be totally honest with you. Every day I start out on the shores of eternity, and I begin to wade in. And every day I go a little, a little further. And then the cares of this world pull me back. One day, there'll be nothing here to pull me back. Amen. I'm not, I'm not sure if this is cowardly on my part or the fulfillments of the words of our Lord. Of course, I choose to believe the latter. Amen. Yeshua told us to live in the present, not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough evil of itself. I am quite aware of what evil men and women, evil leaders of nations are planning. I am aware also that that plan will come to pass. I have no doubt of that. The word of God is true, and the will of God will come to pass just as he wrote it, Amen. irrespective of how much I pray against it or whatever I do. <laughs> the flood that will be released against Israel and her child, those who believe in Yeshua, has already begun. It's even happening in this nation. I have chosen to ignore what is coming. To worry about tomorrow is to deplete the joy of this day. And then you have two sad days instead of one. I take as much joy as I can from every single moment. I, I try to drink to the dregs every moment of time that the Lord has allotted me. And I learned this 
when my first wife got sick and she was dying. And we began to live for the disease. And the disease consumed us every waking moment. And one day we sat down and through tears, we pondered our situation. And we determined no more. This disease will not be the primary focus of our life. And we will suck the marrow out of each day and live it to the fullness. And we lived more during those last three years of her life than we had in the previous 25 years of marriage. When she died, we had been married 28 and a half years. I want to laugh. I want to rejoice. I want to be silly sometimes. Sometimes I want to mourn with others. I want to live. Worry ceases life. It stops it. My first night in Israel during the attacks by Saddam Hussein was a very anxious time. The sirens blared throughout the night and all scurried to hide in the Khera Hatum. And there were two Khera Hatums. One was the room that was taped off and the other was these little tents for infants that couldn't wear the gas masks. They put them in these cellophane type of tents with vents on them and filters. And I watched a tearful mother trying to calm her crying baby who could, just kept screaming to touch mama. And mama was touching the cellophane and I'm watching this and my heart is breaking. I'm crying in a, gra in a gas mask, which I don't recommend. <laughs> and I became angry at God. I demanded of God, how can you allow this to happen? To the old people, I understand. But this is a baby. This is the first memory of Purim that this child is going to have? How do you allow this to happen? Where are you? I recommend you don't yell at God. Yeah. <laughs> he yells back. God's rebuke forever changed the way I live my life. The Lord said to me, you are not the first one to call out Ayeka. Where are you? I was. You ran from me. I searched for you. Be still and know that I am the Lord. I try not to yell at God anymore and ask him, where are you? Where are you? For I know he is there, hidden amongst the distractions of the day. He's here now, in this room. He was here across the parking lot when I walked over. He was 
there with me when I was driving around today doing what I had to. Just as much as he was in the morning when I was waiting in the pool of eternity. Always there. Adonai Shama. God is there. And if I diligently seek him, his promise is I will find him. And as the Lord lifts up his face upon me, he will give me peace. Father, in Yeshua's name, I thank you for the story of Purim, for the hope it brings, for the realization that irrespective of my awareness, you are there. You're always there. Where shall I go to escape you? Even in the depths of Sheol, you are there. May those words comfort us, Lord God, in these days of darkness and confusion and distraction, in the great delusion that you have sent upon this earth so that those who are not lovers of truth will believe a lie. Thank you for the light you have shed upon those who call out your name and the name of your son, that in your light we see light. In your light the path is illuminated. Lord God, increase your light within our lives. May our neshoma burn brightly. May we find the peace of your presence. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.